Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from Tiriusiar in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Euro Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Anthony Dockrell. In this edition, we have a special look at the year in journalism. The year in media transition was a panel discussion looking at some of the big issues of 2020. It was held by the Centre for Media Transition at UTS. Our host was Sasha Malatoris. The panel includes Nine's Jacqueline Millay, the ABC's Louise Mulligan, and the Australian's Troy Branston. Welcome to uh, the year in media transition, 2020. So this is something that we thought we'd try this year and hopefully turn into an annual event where we reflect on the year that was and what a year it's been. So the focus today will be on journalists and journalism and how the practice of journalism has changed, is changing, um, and what the year's been been like here. So my name's Sasha Molitoris. Um, I was a journalist for quite a long time at the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, I'm an academic now at the University of Technology Sydney with the Centre for Media Transition. Uh, I want to pay my respects, first of all, to the traditional custodians of the various lands and waters where we are, um, pay respects to their elders, past and present, uh, including the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, of course. Um, and, and I hope that this conversation that we're having uh, is a really positive conversation, ultimately, that, that promotes journalism um, and teases out what's good about journalism and how we can foster it, you know, and, and that's for the benefit of uh, Indigenous Australians, all Australians, all of us, of course. Um, and okay, what, what a year it's been. So last week, uh, just to, to give a few introductory contextual comments, last week the Journalism Education and Research Association of Australia had a conference, uh, an annual conference, and it's always really interesting with a lot of good speakers. Uh, and if I could sum up the three-day conference in just a few words, it was that journalism is in deep trouble. Right? There's, a, there's a serious problem or a, a serious series of problems, um, but there's hope. And it was the same for journalism education, and I know that a few people here are, are journalism educators. So there's, there are serious problems, but there's hope. Uh, the opening keynote at the conference was given by Maria Ressa, uh, an amazing, inspirational Filipino journalist who is currently awaiting sentencing for after she's been convicted of cyber libel, an absurd crime, very Kafka-esque. So she's facing the prospect of six years in jail. And if you know her story, if you don't know her story, please do um, look her up and rap and what's going on there because there's um, tremendous injustice playing out. And uh, she explained in, in really systematic terms how big data can be used um, uh, by, um, by governments, in her case in the Philippines, um, often with other actors. Uh, and, and what her team has done has they've, they've tracked and traced a whole lot of the threats and intimidation coming her way. Uh, she gets threats at the rate of about 90 an hour, um, including death threats and all sorts of abuse. Um, and as I say, she's currently facing, facing six years in jail. So she's clearly uh, under pressure. She's a victim there, but also, you know, it's, it's journalism and it's, it's democracy and it's our society that are uh, very much um, the victims there and are, uh, under assault and the truth, right? So. So that's kind of the Filipino context, and her argument was very much that this is something that it's not just limited to the, to the Philippines, but we're seeing this as something that is emerging around the world in various different guises. And, of course, in the US, we've seen an assault on truth over the past four years uh, where credible 
news outlets have been, been labelled as fake news. And, and this is a real this is a real worry, and sometimes it's hard to get a handle on what exactly is such a problem there. And, and it calls to mind for me a quote from the philosopher Hannah Arendt. Uh, she said this in 1974, so I'll read it out. The moment we no longer have a free press, anything can happen. What makes it possible for a totalitarian or any other dictatorship to rule is that people are not informed. How can you have an opinion if you are not informed? If everybody always lies to you, the consequence is not that you believe the lies, but rather that nobody believes anything any longer. And then she went on to say, a people that no longer can believe anything cannot make up its mind. It is deprived not only of its capacity to act, but also of its capacity to think and to judge. And with such a people you can do, you can then do what you please. It sounds eerily familiar. She said that in 1974, and, and I think in the current context, um, there's a real resonance to, to those words. Now, here in Australia, the situation isn't as bad as it's been in the US, uh, certainly not as bad as it is in the Philippines. Um, yet, you know, we did have raids on the ABC in 2019. We had raids on the home of News Corp's Annika Smethurst. Um, meanwhile, the news business model continues to collapse and COVID's just, um, just wreaking havoc. So with that as the context, um, I'm so pleased to introduce the three panellists, three of Australia's finest journalists, um, with whom we can talk about journalism and some of these issues, um, uh, what we can do. So Jackie Maiden, she's a senior columnist, a senior journalist, a columnist, former Canberra Press Gallery sketch writer for the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, full disclosure, uh, we were colleagues at the Herald for a few years. Um, last month, Jackie and Kate McClymont won a Walkley Award, well-deserved too for their investigation into former High Court Justice Dyson Hayden. Uh, we also have Louise Milligan, uh, an investigative reporter for ABC TV's Four Corners. She's a press freedom medalist, and she wrote the Walkley Award-winning Cardinal, The Rise and Fall of George Pell. And she has a new book, Witness, an investigation into the brutal cost of seeking justice. And we have Troy Bramston, a senior writer and columnist with The Australian, and he has a wide brief ranging heavily on politics and Australian politics, but then also into pop culture and other areas. He's a multi-best-selling uh, book author um, with 10 credits. Um, his book titles include Robert Menzies, The Art of Politics, Paul Keating, The Big Picture Leader, and The Truth of the Palace Letters, which we'll get to shortly. So we're thrilled that the three of you could join us. Thank you so much. Um, just to let everyone in the audience know, we will have a Q&A at the end. I'll try to leave about 15 minutes for that. Um, if you want to, while we're talking, while we're having our discussion, use the chat, post links, post comments, however you, 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 you want to engage, please do. If you have a question that comes to you at any stage, put it in the Q&A and then we'll come to those at, at the end. Um, you can choose whether to look at us in speaker view or gallery view, of course. Uh, and the last thing I wanted to mention is that we are recording. We won't be posting um, the whole webinar to, to the web but we will be posting a, pod, a podcast episode of the 2SER show. So just the audio will go out with the 2SER show before this day. So thanks again to the three of you um, for joining us. Um, Louise, why don't I start with you? Um, what was this year like for you as a journalist, you know, at, at a time when truth has often been under attack? And is there any particular moment that stands out for you? In terms of truth being under attack, I don't think anyone can go past Donald Trump saying that he had won the election in the US. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Um, 
it's it's depressing that people can go out into the public domain that the person who is you know the so-called leader of the free world can go out and pretend that you know white is black Mm. and it's um it's it's a real worry for us as journalists that this is that this is a trend um and I think, you know, there's this sort of pressure um, because people like him try to sort of say that we should be balanced and therefore cover their perspective. Mm. And, I mean, I was just tweeting about it this morning, you know, it's this this idea like that, that there are two balanced perspectives when, you know, the earth is not flat. <laughs> the litamide did cause disability. The president's men did... Um, break into the Watergate building. You know, we have to be searching for the truth. We can't just pretend sometimes that uh, a perspective that is completely wrong gets as much uh, weight as as the truth does. Um, So it's a really difficult balance um, because as journalists, we are constantly under attack at the moment because we have these social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook where people feel now that, you know, they have a voice that they want to sort of put out into the world and that's a fantastic thing. You know, Mm. we have much more of an engagement with our audience, with our readers and our viewers and I love that as a journalist and it helps to, to provide, you know, information for me that informs my journalism people give me tips you know I get a much better understanding of the audience but the other side of it is that um that there's this sort of idea that from some people that you know every opinion is equally valid and 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 that has real problems not just for truth but also ultimately for democracy, which is really under threat at the moment. Yeah, thank you. Jackie, do you, do you agree with all that? And do you have anything to add? Is there a moment that sticks out for you? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I agree with Lou that the, it, Donald Trump's denial of the election result or his undermining of that result was really predictable because that's what Donald Trump does. He spreads misinformation. He is completely self-interested. He's, you know, borderline de- delusional. And, you know, he's he's venal and he, he foreshadowed that he was going to do that before he did it. But it was still really shocking, I think, when he did it, even though we knew it was coming um, because it was like such a public and, you know, international trashing of yet another democratic convention, which was, you know, which is a sort of peaceful transfer of power. And it's it was just interesting to me in a more detached way to look at how, a democratically elected leader can slowly but surely erode democratic conventions even more effectively than if he'd been a dictator or some sort of authoritarian who'd, who'd gained office via a coup or, you know, via force. Um, so that that was kind of interesting to me. I don't know what that tells us about truth and journalism. Um, I, have, I have noticed that um, in Australia journalists are under attack a lot on social media from you know, I, I feel, I'm thinking particularly of the Victorian case, like people have really strong views about Dan Andrews, but I think it's pretty extraordinary that, 
in um, a democracy like Australia, particularly as we like to think of ourselves as quite anti-authoritarian, like Larrick and Spirited and whatever, that you have people who are not just annoyed by journalists questioning or criticising their chosen political leader, they're so enraged by it that they abuse um, the person who they, you know, they think is detracting from this leader's great brilliance. Like I, that to me, I just never thought I'd see that in Australia. I think that's really weird. And I think it's something particular to the pandemic and it's a psychological moment for everybody. But um, I found that really disturbing, actually. Mm. Troy, have you witnessed that as well? Do you, do you, have you found there's kind of a new attack on journalists and, and, and you doing your job? Uh, yeah, look, I, I have. Um, I've found that particularly in reporting and discussing about the US election, um, that there has been quite a, a very emotive response uh, from, from the audience. And, um, you know, I think we are, we are now looking at a, a post-truth reality. Um, and I've written a little bit about this in, in recent months, uh, where people think, think that their emotions uh, and their prejudice should matter more than facts and more than reality. People want to believe things, and because they want to believe them, they believe that they're true. And I think the United States and the example of Donald Trump is probably um, the best manifestation of that, but I'm seeing it in other aspects of, of public life and international life as well. I think it's very dangerous about Donald Trump calling the media the enemy of the people, um, which is a phrase that's been used by dictators and despots uh, for, for many, many years. Um, and I do think that I agree with, uh, I think Jackie might have said it all, Louise, or both of them, about the attacks that journalists are facing on social media, um, particularly women, I think, are getting a much harder time. Um, and this kind of sort of, if I can use this phrase, uh, sort of a sexualized kind of attack um, that comes against women is particularly re reprehensible. Um, but I'll, I'll be honest with you and your audience because I think this is this is what, what we should be, and that is to say that, um, you know, I used to do a lot of uh, Sky News at night time um, throughout the year, but I, I pulled back on that quite considerably about halfway through the year because I was a very, very persistent critic of Donald Trump. Um, I've, you know, called him a, a fool and a liar and a grotesque human being. I wrote this repeatedly in The Australian and called him out. But whenever I appeared on Sky News and even wrote it in the paper, um, I would find the attacks coming my way that were quite extraordinary, not just on social media, which is part of the course, but I had people uh, getting my email address, I had people writing me letters, old-fashioned in the post. Um, I had people actually tracking down my phone number um, and threatening physical violence against me and my family because of the stance I took against Donald Trump. Um, and it's pretty extraordinary. Now, look, to use a phrase that's been used, I've, I've got my big boy pants on and I can, I can take it. I'm not particularly intimidated uh, by that. Um, but I just felt that the attacks, particularly from that Sky News audience late at night, which are very, very pro-Trump, um, were, just, were just completely unnecessary, over the top, uh, and I just didn't really need that uh, in my life anymore. And, you know, when you're just recounting basic factual episodes, like Donald Trump saying people should inject disinfectant, um, people would, would say, no, he didn't actually say that. Um, and they'd argue with you about that when, in fact, he did say that. Um, and a host of other, you know, terrible things that he said about individuals and lies that he made and, you know, a, a defective response to coronavirus. So, so yes, I've found it personally... Uh, 
uh, very difficult to be a journalist in Australia writing about US politics. And I can only imagine, and we've seen it, what US journalists are going through as well and the attacks that they face, which must be almost unbearable. Mm. There's an irony there that, um, you know, that can have a chilling effect on journalism. And I imagine a lot of journalists are not touching certain topics or, you know, staying away from saying certain things. Um, so, you know, the people who are uh, making these emotive um, statements, often untrue statements, I'm sure they will be invoking free speech as a defence for why they can do this. And yet their, their impact on free speech are um, often yeah, chilling. Just, I should just add just very quickly, look, I had people even in their comments under my articles in The Australian saying uh, that I should be sacked uh, from the newspaper for holding certain views, that you know, how how dare this appear in the Australian newspaper? How dare uh, this be this be published? So there's this constant intimidation you're getting as a journalist, and I stress, I think women journalists, as I said before, get it worse. Uh, but you know, this is an attack that comes on your article on the website, uh, letters in the mail, uh, emails, social media, and even phone calls. Um, wow. You know, just because you've got a, a deeply held opinion, which, you know, I try to base all my opinions on fact, uh, but it is, it is quite uh, frightening um, mm. and very intimidating. Um, but, you know, you, you need a thick hide, I think, to be a journalist in this day and age. Yeah, sure. I was just going to say, can I give you some advice, Troy? Never read the comments in the Australian. No, no, I don't. I don't. I don't. Until hell. Go on, Jackie. Oh, I think we, we've, on that point of the comments on your articles, I think, I mean, I never read the comments on my articles, which maybe makes me a bad journalist, I don't know. But um, I think that media organisations have a responsibility there, not just, like, you know, why would you post this product of which you're proud, you know, like the, the journalism of, of Troy Bramston, you know, this sort of jewel in the crown of the Australian's journalism and then just, like, publish all these knickknacks sort of trashing it. Like, I think that's really odd. And I know the Herald's pulled back a little bit from doing that. Like, they edit the comments a lot more judiciously because they don't, they're not going to publish abuse and um, and harsh, unfair criticism of their journalists, you know, ad hominem sort of criticism. So I think that's one, one small way in which a news organisation can protect its journalists from that. Mm, the comments is a huge issue. Um, uh, just uh, there's a, a, a PhD candidate at the Centre for Media Transition with this whole topic on comments and how they add to pluralism and diversity. So it's a really live, fascinating issue, I think, for today's news environment. What we're talking about goes to trust as well, right? So trust in journalism and in news has been a problem for a while. You know, it peaked in the US and in Australia in the 70s when most people had good, deep trust in what journalists did and what news was for. Uh, and then it's been declining ever since. You know, and in Australia, the figures roughly are that one in two people trust the news, right, in, that, in those sort of general terms. Now, there was a bit of a bounce back uh, in the last couple of years um, since Trump's election, um, but then since COVID as well. So this is all pretty complicated. But do you have any thoughts about trust in journalism, where we're at and what we can do to improve it? Jackie? Um, I mean, I think on the, the positive side, there's probably been a bit of a flight to quality during the pandemic. Um, the Herald and The Age saw a huge, and the Financial Review saw a big increase in our subscriptions because I think people, when they're under feeling under threat or worried um, and they need the news, you know, they really needed the news this year. Like, that, you know, you had ordinary people watching press conferences because they just wanted to find out how they were supposed to live their lives for the next few weeks or months. 
Um, so that that meant that our subscriptions actually really really increased. So that was heartening because um, obviously the media has been in pretty much constant decline ever since I've been part of it. Um, but um, yeah, so I think it's probably people you know do do still trust media organisations. In general, people trust institutions less than they used to. And, you know, ironically enough, journalism has done a, a great role in undermining people's faith in, in institutions in various ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, look, I, I think it's really scary. Like, you see it probably more in the United States than you do here, thank goodness. But people just don't don't trust the mainstream media. You know, like um, your typical Trump supporter, I mean, Troy would know more about this than me, but... They just don't, they think the mainstream media just publishes lies and lies and lies, like, you know, and they have wild conspiracy theories and they just don't trust it. So I don't know what you do about that. Like, I really don't. Um, And um, I just hope it doesn't catch on in Australia. Well, it is a a very live issue that a lot of researchers are are thinking about. One thing the research does show us is that the ABC is clearly the most trusted um, organisation in Australia, followed by SBS. and also that it raises general levels of trust. So, you know, general levels of trust in media. Um, look, I won't dwell on that for, for reasons of time. Um, let's move from that onto the petition that, um, you know, we were talking about diversity, uh, how comments can add to diversity uh, of um, voices in news media. Um, so this has been a real issue in Australia where we've traditionally had a very concentrated media market right, with, with not so many owners, not many owners. Um, and a very dominant position by News Corp, uh, and now nine as well. So last month, Kevin Rudd presented his petition to Parliament with uh, the half a million signatures, and now we've got the Senate inquiry into media diversity. Um, but Troy, I'll go to you as someone from News Corp. Um, do you have any general response to um, the issue of media diversity, media ownership? Um, is this very much a, a, a... How do you see it? Yeah, look, I actually think there's more diversity in the media than ever before. Um, you know, we've had new entrants in recent years with The Guardian, uh, the Saturday paper, um, websites like The Conversation, Inside Story play an important role as well in broadening out media voices and diversity. Uh, social media uh, has given citizen journalists and readers and consumers of the media an opportunity to have their opinion um, and often that opinion will be shared by other media outlets as well. Um, we've had a, a surge in podcasts um, that examine aspects of the news. We've had a surge, I think, in new documentaries. We've seen Sky News do some really good documentaries and programs like uh, 60 Minutes on Nine do really good sort of longer form um, stories and, of course, Four Corners. Uh, so um, I actually think we've got a lot of diversity in, in the media, um, now, you may think I would say that, wouldn't I, because I work for, for News Corporation, but it's actually my, my view. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not here to run a sort of a brief on behalf of the company, but I, I do find Malcolm Turnbull and Kevin Rudd's push for a petition um, highly self-serving and hypocritical. Um, I don't think I heard any uh, complaints from them about media bias when the Australian newspaper, for example, endorsed uh, their elections. Um, and, you know, they, they, they're both guilty of using the media and backgrounding journalists to undermine their colleagues uh, when, it, when it suited them. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I find they're not a lot, not a lot of credibility in their, in their arguments. Um, and I think it's telling that there's not one government or opposition MP, meaning Labor or Coalition, who has supported uh, 
um, this petition at all. Um, and maybe there's, there's other reasons for that. Um, we can speculate about that. Um, I'd also say that um, although there's more diversity, we have seen some kind of bundling up of media organisations. And obviously the nine Fairfax merger um, is a really good example of that. And ironically, that happened when Malcolm Turnbull was, was Prime Minister. Um, so that has led to a very big media company uh, that now has newspapers, television and radio in the same market, which is something that News Corp uh, doesn't have. Um, and I still think the ABC is, is hugely influential in setting the national news agenda and, and shaping, our, shaping our, our opinions um, right across the board, whether it's the online, it's the radio, it's social media, it's TV. So, look, I've just never actually believed this, this argument, even when I, you know, before I was a journalist. I, I just always found it um, hypocritical. So, uh, yeah. for me, from my perspective, I see a lot of diversity um, in the media and I don't think that anyone who wants to have a different, different opinion uh, or hear a different point of view, you know, has any has any difficulty uh, finding that? Yeah, right. Louise, <laughs> can I jump in and say, like, as for Kevin Rudd and Malcolm Turnbull, they're big boys. Um, they're they're not perfect creatures, and they they have their agendas. Okay, fine. But the fact that you know you say not one politician from Labor or Liberal has supported the petition. Why would they do that? Why would they stick their head above the parapet and risk the um, jihad that people have had from News Corp when, for whatever reason, it is deemed that they are running a campaign against them? I mean, it is endless uh, and it's terrible for those people. I used to work for The Australian and I loved working there. Um, and, you know, I never had a complaint from them and I certainly never had a complaint about working there. I left um, because I had another job to go to at Channel 7 and then eventually went to the ABC. Um, but I have been shocked to see some of the campaigns that they have run against individuals, not saying that those individuals have never done anything wrong, but the endless, endless, there is no other way of putting it than bullying and, and taking a particular position. I mean, I saw it myself um, when I was covering, well, when I, when I wrote a book about George Pell and, um, and, I, and I did some stories for the ABC about that and from the very, very get-go, uh, the Australian decided that they were going to defend Pell. And they made mistakes frequently in their reporting and they never corrected those mistakes. Um, and they criticised me a lot in a completely unfair way. And, you know, it was sort of like, wow, like you never had a problem with me now you're just going to throw me under the bus. You know, this was like my former friends. This was like people who my kids had gone on playdates with their kids. But because this was the line that they were going to take in favour of this person who a five-year Royal Commission found repeatedly knew about insatiable pedophile priests and did nothing about it, and it, a jury found that he had sexually abused um, 
teenage choir boys. The two most senior judges in Victoria found that. The High Court overturned that decision, and that's fine. That's the law. That's We have to find things beyond reasonable doubt, and that's a very high bar to achieve. But just this campaign, I just found it so strange. And I also found it lacked empathy for people whose lives have been destroyed by clergy abuse. Now, that's just one example. There are many other examples that are far more extreme than that, to be honest. But I can see why MPs wouldn't put their name to that petition. Now, I I think there should be more diversity um, in Australia. I think that News Corp, the Australian the Daily Telegraph, the Herald Sun, et cetera, et cetera, they do fantastic stories. They have fantastic journalists. Troy is one of them. Um, but that doesn't mean that they should be above scrutiny. Well, I guess there are two issues there, aren't there? One is, one is does the does News Corp have too much influence and does it use that influence in ways that um, are unfair or you know, in some, some ways questionable? Uh, and the other issue, which is related of, of pluralism and diversity of voices and media ownership and, and so forth. So two interrelated issues. Jackie, just um, quickly before we move on, did you have anything you wanted to add to, to that discussion? Um, I mean, I don't think you can really deny that News Corp does run highly personalised, um, unrelenting campaigns against individuals, as, as Lou's just said. And, I mean, I say that as someone who, you know, is a News Corp, I'm a subscriber to The Australian, I, I don't, like the sort of knee-jerk line that all News Corp, you know, that News Corp is evil, evil and Rupert Murdoch is evil and all of that gumph. I'm not, I know that the, um, I'm not sure what the petition will achieve. Um, I, I, and I say that as a genuinely open question. I just haven't, I haven't really looked into what an outcome might be. Um, it doesn't really bother me that Malcolm Turnbull and Kevin Rudd are sort of mounting a campaign about this. I think that's their right. Um, yes, they, you know, they took advantage of um, press coverage when it was positive and when it went their way, but that doesn't mean they can't deconstruct the system because they know it better than anyone. Mm. And, um, you know, I note that The Australian published um, in on this in its Saturday paper last weekend a big front-page story, which I, of which I read every word. I lapped it up about um, how much, you know, Kevin Rudd just sort of assiduously cautioned the press, the News Corp press, when he was um, trying to topple... Uh, uh, Kim Beasley become um, the leader of the opposition himself. And it was sort of like um, it proved a point against Kevin Rudd, but it also proved Kevin Rudd's point, which was basically they're your friends until you cross them and then they will just like throw throw the kitchen sink at you, will throw everything they can at um, at destroying your reputation. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, but, you know, having said all of that, I'm a total advocate for free speech and freedom of the press and people should be able to pretty much write, write I think, whatever they want and publish whatever they want. Um, and Troy's point that we have a great diversity, you know, alternative media sources is also true. So, um, and, you know, state government, like particularly on state government level, not so much federal government level, but News Corp um, journalism or News Corp campaigns have proven to be less effective in terms of turning people off leaders or turning people on to leaders. So, Mm. And they didn't save Tony Abbott. I mean, you know, they're, they're powerful up to a point. Yeah, thank you. We've had a poll as well on this question. So the question was, in Australia, media diversity and the concentration of media ownership is uh, terrible or reasonable or better than ever. Um, uh, most people said terrible. We need more media voices, um, with a few saying it's reasonable. 
Um, okay, so let's, let's, you know, the business model, let's move on to that. You know, this is something that is such a big issue for journalism, that, that um, journalism was in crisis already um, before COVID hit. And then COVID hit and newsrooms have just been, been hit so hard. And we know all about the closures. So according to the PG, the Public Interest Journalism Initiative Newsroom Mapping Project, which is uh, a really handy resource um, that, that you can look up online and that we might be able to put a link to in the chat, um, with uh, that newsroom mapping, mapping project shows that there have been 194 contractions, so basically closures or, or shuttering, um, uh, temporary suspension sometimes, but often temporary turns into permanent. So 194 since the beginning of last year, beginning of 2019, but most of those have come since COVID. Um, so how, how have you, Troy, I'll start with you. You know, has this, is this something that you've... Um, how have you experienced this and how have your colleagues experienced this? Um, have you seen newsrooms really badly affected by, by these financial, uh, this financial adversity hitting? Yeah, look, I mean, we have seen, sadly, the closure of lots of local and uh, regional newspapers this year. So I'd start with that point. Um, and lots of journalists have lost their jobs. And so that's very, 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 very sad, of course. And I'm, I'm very fortunate and feel very lucky um, to you know, have still have a job um, at a national at a national newspaper. So um, I feel very privileged, and I don't I don't take it take it for granted at all. Um, I've seen my own newsroom shrink a bit, like all newsrooms have. I've seen colleagues who are, you know, sitting next to me at a desk one day or a few desks over, are no longer there the next day because they've had to take uh, redundancy, um, and that's uh, sad sad for them. Um, we have seen, of course, a reduction in advertising revenue, and that kind of fell off a cliff at the start of. Uh, COVID-19, but we've also seen a surge in subscription. So the Australian, for example, has more subscribers in total numbers than ever before. Um, and, um, you know, we're, we're doing really well, I think, in terms of uh, having a paywalled site, uh, one of the best paywalled sites in the world in terms of growing subscriber numbers uh, and having people pay for it. It's, it's actually an international uh, success story after after papers like the New York Times and mm. the Wall Street Journal. This is actually one of the best examples of of making it work. Um, but people obviously people need to pay for it, and you've got to make a case for that, and you've got to keep producing uh, quality journalism. I think um, the other point I'd make is Sasha. You know, nobody no no company wants to see a local newspaper close. Um, this is some of the arguments that's been put that there's some kind of evil evil plan to you know, shut newspapers. I mean, for a private company, um, if a newspaper is making money, then they'll keep it open. I mean, and so the bottom line is the revenue pressures, um, the readership or, or subscription or, um, you know, cost pressures in terms of buying a buying a paper, meaning mean the readers buy, buying a paper are forcing these decisions. Uh, they're, you know, newspapers need readers. And if they don't have the readers, then they're not going to be able to sustain themselves and they're, and they're going to go. So I don't think it's actually right to blame the company. Um, it's, in fact, a, a reflection of the audience, that they're, that they're not buying these newspapers. Um, but I really worry about the lack of local newspapers in particular. We now have local government areas in Australia where there's no local journalist covering what is going on there at all. Mm. Um, and we know this is, this is a killer fact that most corruption in Australian politics happens at the local government level. And I really do worry about the health of our local democracy and our communities uh, if we don't have local newspapers reporting 
and monitoring what's going on. And some of these newspapers that are surviving are down to maybe, you know, one or two or three journalists uh, mm. covering an entire council area, which is an almost impossible job. Um, and the other point I'd make is a lot, a lot of people feel connected to their community uh, through their local newspaper. That's how they find out what's going on um, and how they connect with each other. So uh, that's going to have an impact as well. Um, and sadly, it's just a reality of the media landscape. Um, but I think in future years, our democracy is going to be poorer uh, for not having some of these local local media. Yeah. Um, look, and, and this newsroom mapping project that I mentioned, there are some uh, uh, green shoots as well. There have been about 58, I think the number is, uh, new titles um, during this period. So um, while there were 194 contractions since the beginning of last year, there are also uh, 58 newcomers of one form or another over that same period. And again, most of those since COVID. Um, so we've all heard stories about, um, I mentioned about local papers that have started up sometimes by, uh, have been started by journalists who um, were, were out of jobs after a local paper shut down. So they started their own alternative independent. Um, Jackie, what do you, um, do you have any thoughts on this issue about the kind of financial crisis besetting the industry, um, which has been made worse in a lot of cases under COVID? Um, but it's a complicated story, of course, as Troy says, subscriptions are good in some cases. Um, how's it been for you at the Sydney Morning Herald and what have you witnessed? Um, yeah, I mean, the same, the same thing. There was a, there was a real sense of fear um, when, the, when COVID really hit and when the lockdown started. Every, people were really worried about losing their jobs and we thought that definitely there would be redundancies. But we didn't actually have really have redundancies. We had, like, a few, there was a few jobs shared in, like, um, sort of more lifestyle stuff. But really, we we dodged that bullet, I think, just generally because we were in pretty good shape before we entered the pandemic. Uh, advertising fell off a cliff and still hasn't recovered. So, um, you know, like travel sections in the weekend papers or like the magazine lift outs in the weekend papers just shrank kind of overnight from, you know, 30 pages to five in some cases. Like it was really dramatic and really scary. Um, but on the on the other side, we've seen a growth in subscriptions, which of course doesn't make up for the financial like it's, it's, doesn't make up for the loss of the advertising revenue. But um, it's still heartening, I suppose, that people still want the product, and one only hopes that the advertising comes back. Um, I don't know what you do, I really, about the shrinking of newsrooms more generally because it's just it's a structural problem. Like you can't get rid of people looking. I mean, you get on a train these days and. You know, um, people are all looking at their phones and they're not reading, reading news. They're looking at Instagram, watching a video, checking out Netflix, you name it. So I don't think you can do anything about that, actually. Um, there are some, some pretty disturbing details emerging of, of some of the pressures. One is uh, the way that um, the impacts of the crisis in journalism are gendered. So I've just, um, I've just pasted a link into the chat um, that is some of the research we've done. I won't, I won't dwell on that given the time. Um, but Louise, so, so one of the ways that the government is trying to respond to the problem for journalism is with the news media bargaining code. And, you know, to distill that into a few words, Google and Facebook are going to be told to pay um, for news content. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Is that fair? Is that a good approach? It's a world first. It's clearly uh, raised the hackles of Google and Facebook who responded really aggressively. What do you think? I think it's a good idea in principle. I'd just be a bit, I'd question how it's actually going to operate in reality, given that Google and Facebook are not particularly, you know, favourable to it. Mm. Um, 
I did find it pretty extraordinary that they tried to stop the ABC from being able to, to profit. That was just what the hell. Mm. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a reasonable proposal and may help the, you know, the, the struggling media proprietors, you know, who are losing, you know, aspects of the business model if it works, and that's the big if. Yeah, let's let's see how it plays out. Toy, do you have any thoughts on the on the code and and getting the digital platforms? And at, at this stage, we're just talking about Google Search and Facebook. You know, so it's yeah. not it's not YouTube, it's not Instagram. So it seems very much like a, okay, let's just start there. Um, some concessions were made in the bill that was released this week um, to the digital platforms to soften it. Um, Troy, did you have any thoughts? Yeah, look, I think it's I think it's a good idea. Um, I think that so the social media giants uh, should should pay for news. You know, they're benefiting from the work of us and, and others. Um, and this I see this really as a market power issue, and they're abusing their their market power. So. Um, you know, this is a world first. Uh, we're yet to see how well it's going to work. Uh, the final details are yet to be yet to be clarified. Um, and I think some of the media companies may, in fact, strike their own deals. There's been speculation about this. It's above my pay grade um, about about striking a, a deal with these companies, particularly Google, um, and uh, to avoid you know getting into some kind of bargaining and arbitration uh, pro, uh, process. So. Uh, look, it's a, it's good in principle, and uh, I think there is a good case for the ABC and SBS to be included in it, um, and that's obviously where the government's landed as well. That's probably going to help them um, get it through, get it through the parliament. Um, the other factor is for the private media companies is, and this may seem counterintuitive, is that if the ABC and SBS are not included, um, then that would mean that Google and Facebook would would simply favour their stories uh, over the over the private media. So it's actually in. In our interest, as working for a private media company, I think uh, that they be included. Yeah, I think that was a very strong argument um, for the, the about face on that issue. Actually, um, look, I'll, I'll move on. Um, just given the time, um, so let's dive into some of the specific stories that you've worked on because I'm sure people would love to to hear a little bit about those. So, Louise, I'll start with you and this story that keeps keeps giving inside the Canberra bubble. Right. So, Christian Porter, Alan Tudge, um, sexual harassment in Canberra more broadly. Um, how how has the reaction been uh, from your end? Um, how, how would you describe what's going on? And, and just in the last few days, um, Ida Butro is being told to, to answer specific questions about whether it was a, an unbiased report, an impartial report. Mm. I found the reaction really fascinating um, in the sense of it has been quite gendered, mm. I think because women are sick of this behaviour. Women have to put up with it in every workplace that they enter and for them to know that this is also happening in the nation's parliament and that ministers of the Crown are engaging in it is depressing and that's what they've said and certainly in terms of the commentary um, and the the follow-up in the media women journalists have been very supportive of it, but so have, you know, a number of male journalists. But there has been a rump of men who, you know, are horrified by this intrusion into private lives. Well, it's not private lives. It's a workplace. And, you know, for instance, the public bar incident with 
with Christian Porter. Um, he is he was tipped at that time strongly to become the Attorney General. He did become the Attorney General. You know, that, that is um, a position that opens you up to great compromise if you misbehave in public, mm. as the former Prime Minister said. Um, to to characterise this as, as, as merely sort of private lives is, is, is just absurd in, in terms of the, the relationship with Alan Tudge and his staffer. You know, she has made a complaint to... Um, the Department of Finance, um, they have engaged um, independent investigators. I found it gobsmacking to see the communications minister, Paul Fletcher, um, describe, lump her into a group of people motivated by animus. He has preempted the findings of that investigation. Again, he is a minister of the Crown. And he has dismissed her complaints. Mind you, complaints which were echoed by another staffer who came forward in the days following to Samantha Maiden at um, news.com.au. And I have had correspondence, seen correspondence from other staffers who've made complaints. So, you know, I, I feel very, very, very strongly that all of this was in the public interest. Um, I found... Minister Fletcher's um, letter tweeted before it was received by the recipients on the ABC board and Ms Buttrose, the chair. I, I, I just thought that was the biggest own goal of all, all time. It was just like, you know, also a total, you know, Streisand effect thing where you're drawing attention to something that happened three weeks ago, like the you know, the Canberra cycle had kind of moved on a bit as it inevitably does because it's just like, move on to the next thing the next day, and um, and he brought it right back again, mm. uh, but also with these absolutely spurious claims, most of which had already been answered by the managing director in Senate estimates, mm. um, but also an absolutely appalling um, government interference in the national broadcaster, in the editorial processes of the national broadcaster, mm. um, it's just amazing. And, and you know, the, yeah, this idea that everyone was either, you know, from the left or the Greens or motivated by animus. I mean, so he, he lumps Conchetta Ferrabanti-Wells into that. Oh, discuss, Minister. How so, Minister? What's her animus? I mean, she may well have animus, but what is it? No one's ever said that before. Interesting. How fascinating. Please tell me more. You know, it, I mean, the whole thing. It's, it's really disturbing and I would suggest also Trumpian in the fact that he um, that he tweeted the thing before he had the courtesy to send it to the ABC board. I mean, it's childish, quite frankly, to do that. And, um, and I'm gratified to see all the way through that the management of the ABC and um, the board of the ABC and Ms Buttrose have supported what we did because it was in the public interest and, um, you know, we should have editorial independence. Four Corners has a very proud tradition of breaking big stories that are in the national interest. Yeah. And, um, you know, if we have the communications minister suddenly telling the ABC board what Four Corners should be doing, we should all feel extremely concerned about that 
and we should all raise our hands in protest at that. Thanks, Louise. Uh, and I do want to ask Jackie and Troy just about specific aspects of their work before I throw it open, so I realise I'm cutting into crowd time. Apologies for that. But, Jackie, you on the Walkley just earlier this month um, for your investigation with Kate Kleiman into Dyson Hayden, so very much on a similar theme as, as Louise's story. Um, tell us a bit about putting that together, the resistance to it, um, how hard did you have to fight to get that story over the line? And were you worried then, and I used to worry about defamation and, you know, possible um, responses? Um, I mean, we didn't have to fight anyone um, to get it over the line. It was just hard to stand up. Um, we knew everything was out there. So in that sense, I was never particularly worried that we were going to publish anything incorrect, if you like, because we knew it was all true and we knew there was a lot of um, allegations, like a lot of allegations. And the more we dug, the more we found. Um, the, the problem always is getting people to go on the record. There's a lot of reasons why it's a really bloody bad idea to go on the record as um, making allegations of sexual harassment or sexual assault. And, you know, it's not something that I would recommend, you know, my sister or my daughter do. I mean, and so you sort of, as a journalist, you're like, I want you to do this. I'm coaxing you to do this. It's good for the, you know, um, public interest. But, like, as a person, you're like, yeah, this could have really bad repercussions for you. So there's a bit of a sort of, like, one, one, once one person goes, you know, a lot more people go. But there were, there were people that we never, that we knew about that we never reported because they, they wouldn't consent to, to doing it, which is fine. Um, and as for defamation risks, yeah, like, I've never been so anxious in my life. Like, my entire kind of, <laughs> like, my entire sort of shoulder, neck area just froze up to the, like, for the whole weeks of, to the point where it was hard to type. I woke up, like, the, the the night before we published a headline, which was Dirty Dyson, which is from, like, someone I'd spoken to at Oxford University. Like, I just woke up in the middle of the night and I was like, this is a guy whose judgments I studied at law school and I'm calling him dirty, like a, a pervert, essentially, on the front page of the newspaper. This is, this is crazy. Like, this is really scary. So yeah, we were really scared, um, but nothing eventuated. And our lawyers were really scared at the beginning. Well, not scared, but they were very, very cautious at the beginning. And then by the end of the week, it was like, yeah, you know, it was like, it was kind of because there was such a such a huge body of material and more people came, came kept coming out, we actually had to hold stuff back. Um, there was stuff we didn't publish. So but yeah, it was really scary, really scary. Yeah. yeah. And, and Troy, you know, all three of you have covered politics in, in Canberra and, and, you know, you've written so many books and the latest one uh, on the Palace Letters. Um, I wanted to ask you two things. One is what is the attraction to long-form journalism? You know, what, what can you do in a book? What, what is the appeal, especially in 2020? Um, uh, and also how has political reporting changed um, while you've been doing it? Yeah, look, I mean, the dismissal was the most dramatic, convulsive, divisive event in our political history. It never ceases to amaze, amaze from one generation to the next as there's new interviews, new documents coming out. And for me, it's been a lifetime obsession. You know, since I was a teenager, I, I tracked down people like Gough Whitlam and Malcolm Fraser and people working at Buckingham Palace or Government House or uh, Labor politicians, Liberal politicians, staff, public servants. I've made it my mission um, to understand the dismissal firsthand. And I wrote a a high school project on it, um, which has been talked about in a, at a few different events that we've done to promote the book. So I've sort of been on the trail of this story, you know, since I was like 15 years old, uh, 30 years ago. So um, for me, it's been terrific to partner with Paul Kelly, one of Australia's most prominent 
and successful journalists uh, on, on two books now um, about the dismissal. But the release of the Palace Letters, um, which is the correspondence between the Governor-General in Canberra and the and Buckingham Palace in London, was really important event. Um, and so this is a good example of, of sort of historical um, writing, but also uh, contemporary news because, uh, you know, I went to a media briefing um, and they revealed the letters, they made them available uh, to journalists that had been invited there. Um, and so, you know, we were given a sort of a, a look at these letters. And so my instinct was I had to get the scoop on the November 11 letter that John Kerr wrote to the palace. Uh, you know, d- did he reveal in there that the Queen was involved or not? So I was looking for that quickly while this briefing was going on. Um, and then I tweeted it out as soon as I found it. Um, and that became sort of, you know, an, an important step in that sort of immediate reporting as a journalist. But then, um, you know, there's a, there's 200 letters. Uh, so Paul Kelly and I had to go back and then, you know, take a more considered view. We wrote, well, I should say we wrote, we wrote online. So I tweeted it first uh, that the Queen was not informed about the dismissal in advance. That's very clear from the from the letters to and from Buckingham Palace, uh, but there was a discussion about options and and canvassing of possible resolutions to the crisis. But there's no sort of smoking gun. There's no green light uh, for a dismissal. There's no prior knowledge. So I so I tweeted it out first. Uh, then we wrote online uh, a couple of stories about what we what we saw very quickly, literally in the cafe um, of the National Archives. I did that with Paul. Then we went back to the press gallery and wrote probably about maybe three, 4,000 words over a bunch of stories within a few hours uh, for the next day's print edition. Um, we did interviews on TV. We did interviews on radio. Uh, we're, I'm continuing to tweet. Um, and then, of course, there's an opportunity to sit back and have take a longer view, a more considered view uh, in a book. Um, and so that, that's what that opportunity provides um, and we did some new interviews as well, um, interviewed the remaining ministers from the Whitlam government. We got Paul Keating to write the foreword. Uh, so, you know, it's an, it's an interesting sort of process uh, that you go through from the immediacy of, of Twitter reporting right through to writing a, a long-form, you know, 60,000-word word book. So to me, it's a fascinating example of how journalism has changed and the sort of breadth of journalism roles. Um, and for me you know, having only really been a journalist for 10 years or so, uh, to do this with Paul, who was reporting the dismissal in 1975 when I wasn't even born, uh, adds another sort of interest uh, level for me. So it's, it's been the thrill of a lifetime. That's great. I love that contrast between tweeting it and writing a book. You're getting, getting that, you know, the microblogging and the, the very long form. Look, um, I just wanted to turn to the Q&A. So we've got a comment from Jim Parker who says, asking journalists to offer profound insights into the plight of the media is like asking musicians about the state of the music industry. They're right at the end of the food chain. You need to talk to people outside the media, including the people formerly known as the audience. I think there's 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 something in that, but I think it's also, I think it's important to talk to the audience, but I think it's important to talk to journalists as well. Um, the people at the Coldface have some important insights, I would suggest. Um, from Derek Wilding, so Derek has a question. Um, in addition to the bargaining code, it looks like public subsidies are going to be needed for some parts of the media, like region, as we talked about. What does the panel think about government subsidising private rather than public media? Um, are there still residual concerns about it affecting the distance between journalists and government, or have we come to think differently about this? 
who will I, who, does anyone want to volunteer a response to that? Troy, I'll jump to you. Uh, look, I don't know. That's, that's, a, that's a difficult question. I mean, I think, you know, it's important that we have a national broadcaster who plays a, a, a public role mm. um, and does aspects of media and reporting and uh, that, is not, uh, that is not done by the private company. So I think that that's important. Should, should government subsidise the private sector? Um, I mean, there are already examples where money is given to private sector organisations for different initiatives on an ad hoc basis. Uh, I'm not. I'm not so sure about that. I, I really don't. Don't know. I, I. I can see the pros and the cons. Um, obviously, there wouldn't be a media organisation that would want to accept government money in return for some kind of favourable government reporting. Um, but you know, we live in a we live in a different age, and um, you know, the media plays an important role in our democracy and mm. keeping uh, public institutions to account. So. Uh, there may there may be a case for it, but we'd have to be very clear about what it what it is, and and it probably should be for a specific purpose rather than just sort of a, a bucket of money to do whatever you want. Mm. Look, uh, the time it is twelve o'clock. I'm going to ask one last question to wrap up. Uh, it's a very general one, um, and it's one I'm sure you can see coming. But it, it's what reasons for optimism do we have about journalism, and how how do you see it unfolding, Jackie? What are you um, what are you optimistic about? <laughs> Um, I mean, I think we have a really amazing pool of talent in Australia and um, there's sort of a new fearlessness maybe. Um, I think, um, you know, Lou's report, um, the Four Corners report, it shows a bit of a paradigm shift um, in terms of what we are willing to or what we think is acceptable to um, investigate about our politicians and our political culture. And it was a paradigm shift that I personally welcome because I think we've had quite a polite culture around our politicians in Australia. So I'm sort of um, I'm optimistic about that. I'm not really optimistic when I look around my newsroom and see all the younger journalists who do such amazing jobs and are like so much better at social media and data journalism and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the spirit of journalism like lives strong in this country and, you know, we still speak truth to power. We aim to and we aim to... Um, investigate breaches of power. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reasonably optimistic about in our industry, that notwithstanding the sort of financial pressures that we have. It's mm, good to hear. And Venus Kalesi asks, um, what has been the role of journalism in offering hope during the pandemic? So that's very much a, a related question. Louise, did you want to speak to that? Um, well, I mean, it's been absolutely fundamental. You know, I think someone mentioned before, you know, we had here in Melbourne, we had... Um, the whole city pretty much glued to Daniel Andrews' press conferences every day. Mm. Um, but, you know, we journalists were delivering the information that people vitally needed to hear, but also were questioning, you know, some of the um, policies by governments, the, the, the Ruby Princess debacle, the quarantine a hotel quarantine issue here in in Melbourne, um, the, the 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 crisis in aged care, you know. Those things were exposed by and talked about by journalists. And I do think that a lot of the criticism that we do see on social media, for instance, about journalists, a lot of it is actually often not about journalists but commentators and presenters, and, and there is a big difference there. And 
actual investigative journalism, I find it really hard to say that word, <laughs> but um, it is still re really very much alive. You know, the work that, that Kate and, and Jackie were doing on Dyson Hayden, um, the work that Nick McKenzie does, the work that we at Four Corners do, you know, that there are really, really powerful things happening. I mean, I had an example earlier in the year with the St Kevin's story where the bravery of one young man, um, Paris Street, coming forward and telling his story has changed an entire culture at that school. The whole leadership team is gone. A slew of teachers who did not prioritise child safety as their number one principle have been let go. And for the first time in the school's long history, there is a female principal. And they are talking about issues around toxic masculinity. They are talking about issues around child protection. And those beautiful boys who, you know, we spoke to alumni, but also the beautiful boys who are there in the classrooms feel empowered to be able to talk about these issues. Um, I couldn't be prouder of Paris and the other young people and older people who were in that culture who came out and spoke truth in a circumstance that was very difficult against immediate self-interest, I might add, mm. and they made change. And that is just the most exciting thing as a journalist, when you can make positive change, when you can shift a culture, big or small, and, um, yeah, that makes me enormously happy and hopeful for the future. Well, Troy, do you share that optimism? Uh, look, I am optimistic. Um, we now have more people reading, uh, listening and watching media than we did a year ago. Mm. Um, and so that is that is very good. And so so coronavirus and Donald Trump, uh, the two, two key things this year that have been good for the media, mm. have seen people return to established media. Um, and the other point I'd just finish off with is this, Sasha. You know, when I started at The Australian 10 years ago, there was a long discussion around the place about how long we'd continue to print the Australian, the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age. That was a, a live issue and people were, were putting one or two or three years on it, um, um, saying they wouldn't be printed, you know, for much longer. And the fact is, 10 years later, uh, no one's talking about that anymore. These papers are going to continue to be printed. And so that is cause for hope. And it's a testament, I think, to the resilience of uh, established media um, and still having an engaged uh, audience. Wonderful. That's great to hear three voices of optimism. Look, um, thank you for being here. Thank you for taking part in this really important conversation. Uh, I could ask you questions for another few hours. <laughs> There's so much to talk about. Um, keep up the good work. You know, we're all counting on you. <laughs> You've been listening to the Year in Media Transition held by the Centre of Media Transition at UTS. The panel included Nine's Jacqueline Millay, the ABC's Louise Milligan and the Australian's Troy Branston. And the host for the discussion was Sasha Malatoris. And thank you for listening to Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of TRCR and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week. But in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. My name is Anthony Dockle. Thanks for listening.